0: True crime horror story contains extreme violence and adult subject matter. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I am your host, JD Horror, and this is True Crime Horror Story, Season 3, Episode 8 Sexual Sadists, Part 5. Warning The following episode contains graphic and disturbing depictions of sexual torture and extreme violence. This episode is definitely not for the faint of heart. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's been said that the cruelty of young children is often a phase that is grown out of after adolescence. Many young boys experiment with ants under a magnifying glass, or ripping the wings off of a fly and turning it into a walk, with some moving on to small mammals. Though I myself have always been an animal lover, and not one to ever indulge in such modest savagery as some of my peers, I have witnessed these acts, or heard their stories second-hand growing up. Almost a 100% of the boys I ran with as a kid that engaged in this sort of thing have turned out to be fuck-ups later in life. Some are dead, some are in jail, and others condemned to a life on the streets chasing the dragon. Even with their dismal futures playing out, I have to imagine, for most of these unfortunate souls, it was a phase as well. Or had they continued down the path, they might have eventually moved on to larger game. Mean kids feed off of each other's sadism and lack of empathy, and nothing is more impressionable than teenage boys. Bullies often seek out other little shitheads and form packs, childhood gangs of insecurity who put others down in order to feel a little bit better about themselves. Our first story here today is about a group of Japanese teenagers who absorbed each other's malice and used their collective brutality to put one 17-year-old girl through 44 days of hell. This is the story of Junko Furuta, Part 1, 44 Days of Hell. Junko Furuta was born on January 18, 1971, in Masato, Saitama, Japan, to loving parents. As a child, she was a bright and inquisitive girl, and was said to have a smile that could light up a room. As Junko blossomed into a young adult, she was responsible and a good student, with big plans for the future. While attending her junior year at Yashio Minami High School, she was also working a part-time job. Junko didn't drink or do drugs. She didn't even date. But that wasn't the reason she turned down the advances of the high school bully, Hiroshi Miyano. Miyano had a look that could give any teenage girl the creeps, and he and his small group of like-minded friends took great pleasure in subjecting much of the weaker members of the student body to their cruelty. A kind-hearted girl like Junko, would have been disgusted with the way Miyano and his buddies conducted themselves in the hallways of Yashio Minami. Besides, there were rumors that Miyano was connected with the Yakuza Crime Syndicate, something Junko wanted no part of. Junko resisted the persistent and continued advances by Hiroshi in the most polite way possible, but by November 25, 1998, Miyano was done waiting for her consent. That evening, Hiroshi Miyano, and his friend Nobuharu Minato were riding mopeds through the park looking for women to rob, rape, and possibly murder. At approximately 8.30pm, Junko was on her way home from work on her bicycle. She was anxious to get back because the season finale of her favorite TV drama, Tonbo, was airing that night. As she pedaled through the park for a shortcut, Furuta was kicked off of her bicycle by a passing Nobuharu Minato. Like the boys had planned, Hiroshi Miyano then pulled up and chased Minato off, playing hero for the benefit of an unsuspecting Junko. Though he had always given her the creeps, Junko was relieved when Miyano offered to walk her home to make sure that she would be safe. Instead of taking the scared and shaken up girl back to the safety of her family, he led her to an abandoned warehouse. Hiroshi forced Junko inside and told her all about his involvement with the Yakuza, and he said that if she didn't give him what he wanted, He would not only kill the girl, but her entire family. Under this threat, and with the aid of violence, Miyano held Furuta down both physically and mentally and raped her for the first of many times. Hiroshi would then call upon his friends Murado Nobuharo, Joe Ugura, and Watanabe Yasushi, who were all aware of his diabolical plan, then took a taxi to a nearby hotel where he raped her for the second time. At around 1.30 a.m., Miyano took Junko to the park to meet up with the other boys. There, the boys told her that the Yakuza had her home address, which they had gotten from her school notebook, and that her entire family would be dead if she had disobeyed them in any way. The group then took Junko to Minato's house, whose parents were working at the time. There, they tied her up and gang-raped her. By the morning of November 27th, almost two days after the kidnapping of Junko Furuta, her parents called the police the boys intended on keeping their victim for the foreseeable future and had a plan to discourage the authorities from creating a massive public search for the girl. Under duress, Junko called her mother and told the crying woman that she had ran away, but she was perfectly safe. Minato's parents soon returned home from work and were told the sobbing girl was Hiroshi Miyano's girlfriend. Though they could see the fear in her eyes, they dared not speak out due to Miyano's supposed Yakuza connections. Within a couple of days, they learned the truth about their unwilling houseguest, but again, shockingly, did nothing. Not only were the Minato scared of Miyano, but the Meek couple also feared their own teenage son. For the 44 days following her capture, Junko Furuta underwent unspeakable acts of violence, perversion, and torture. She was forced to be naked 24-7 and spread her legs for anyone the group wanted to bring in eventually being raped in both the vagina and anus by over a hundred men. Sometimes as many as a dozen Yakuza members, including grown men, would have their way with the frightened girl in a single day. All in all, she was sexually assaulted over 500 times during her 44 days of hell. Unfortunately, the rapes weren't the worst thing that Junko Furuta endured during her last month and a half alive. She was forced to perform masturbation shows for guests of the boys, and if she refused, she was brutally beaten with fists or clubs, and her face was repeatedly smashed into the concrete floor. In addition to being their sex slave, Junko soon became a human toilet for the gang, being urinated on regularly. She was for the most part starving and dehydrated, being given little in the way of sustenance by her abusers who forced her to eat living cockroaches and drink her own urine as they howled with laughter. Soon, normal vaginal and anal rape weren't enough for the boys, and they began to insert a plethora of objects into every orifice of the suffering girl. Bottles, metal bars, needles, barbecue skewers, and an open pair of scissors were among the most vile of the items that penetrated the 17-year-old Junko Furuta. They also took great pleasure in non-sexual torture like burning the girl with cigarette lighters, using her as a punching bag, beating her with bamboo sticks, and dropping dumbbells onto her stomach as she lied naked on the cement crying. When she tried to escape her tormentors as punishment, Junko was doused in lighter fluid and set ablaze, then put out multiple times over. Due to the brutality she endured to her internal organs, Junko couldn't even hold down water let alone food. She would vomit when given even the most meager of food or drink and regularly suffered from bloody diarrhea, which she would be punished for. Desensitized by their own inhumane actions, Miyano, Minato, Ogura, and Watanabe tried to come up with creative ways to make the torture of the girl even more brutal. A glass bottle was pushed into her anus until it shattered, producing a mess of crimson and brown. That Junko was then forced to clean up. Lit cigarettes were shoved into the inner walls of her vagina, followed by hot light bulbs, and when neither of those eventually were enough, the boys began to insert fireworks into the girl and light them. All throughout her torturous ordeal that winter, Junko was forced to sleep outside, naked on a balcony, cold, alone, and in constant, unimaginable pain. Soon, she was unable to stand and barely moved, despite the cruelties perpetrated onto her scarred and mangled body. When the girl was left alone one day, it took all of her strength both physically and of her will to survive, if only to see her family one last time, to force open the balcony door and get to the phone to call for help. Unfortunately, she was caught in the act by the returning Minato and was badly burned for her defiance. Her injuries by this point were so severe that she alternated between catatonic shock and violent convulsions. Her final days were perhaps the most heinous she had endured up to that point. The boys burned off Junko's eyelids and dripped hot wax onto the exposed orbs. They ripped her nipples off with pliers and burned off her clitoris. During the savagery, every time she passed out, Junko's head was dunked into freezing cold water to bring her back to consciousness. She felt everything. During her last days alive, Junko Furuta constantly begged her captors to just kill her and get it over with. By this point, they no longer lusted for her, as her body was mangled, and though she wasn't dead yet, the smell of decomposition radiated from the poor girl. On January 4th, 1989, the four teenagers returned from a losing game of Mahjong, a Japanese equivalent of Scrabble and they were in a foul mood. For over two hours, they alternated from beating on Junko with an iron barbell from head to toe to dousing her in lighter fluid and setting her ablaze. It was the 44th day of her hell, and perhaps mercifully, the last. Junko Furuto succumbed to her numerous injuries that evening. The cause of her death was eventually ruled as traumatic shock. Junko died cold, alone, and suffering and she was pregnant at the time. The gravity of the situation soon hit the boys like a wave of the stench that drifted in the winter breeze from Junko's corpse. In fear of prosecution for their vile crimes, they came up with a plan to dispose of Junko's body. Her nude remains were deposited into a 55-gallon drum that was then filled with concrete. They then transported the barrel to Kodo, Tokyo and disposed of it. Hiroshi Miyano and Joe Ogura were eventually arrested later that month for an unrelated brutal gang rape of another teenage girl. During the interrogation, the investigators led Miyano to believe that Ogura had flipped on him and told the story of the girl in the concrete barrel and the events leading up to her death. In a plea for leniency, he folded and told the police where Junko Furuto was and what had happened to her. The juveniles pled guilty to the lesser crime of, committing bodily injury that resulted in death. Their trial was sensationalized in the Japanese media and became international news and would come to be known as the concrete-encased high school girl murder case. Junko's funeral was held on April 2, 1989. One of her friends gave a tearful eulogy about the girl, who everyone loved and who had walked the hallways with a perpetual smile. Jun Chan, welcome back. I have never dreamed that we would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happiness we all made for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard that the headmasters presented you with a graduation certificate, so we graduated together, all of us. Jun Chan, there was no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. As of this recording, in January of 2021, all four of Junko Furuta's murderers, the boys who put an innocent girl through 44 days of hell, have been released from prison and are living as free men. Time magazine calls him one of the most cunning, evil characters of modern fiction. From the bold and breathless international bestseller, The Collector, comes the suspenseful, disturbing drama of a strange progression from thought to wish, from desire to obsession, from dream to nightmare. <laughs> How long are you going to keep me here? It depends. I just think of things as beautiful or not. Can't you understand? I don't think of good or bad, just of beautiful or ugly. I think a lot of nice things are ugly, and a lot of nasty things are beautiful. We talked about the influential 1963 novel, The Collector, by John Fowles back in Season 1, Episode 10 when we covered the case of Leonard Lake and Charles Ing, Lake was captivated by the book, which is the story of Frederick, a lonely entomologist who abducts a woman named Miranda. He keeps her in a locked dungeon on a secluded property, where he can hold her indefinitely. She resists, but time is on his side. Although he expects that she will eventually love him, he treats her like a specimen in his butterfly collection. It's just an experiment, and she's just a thing. He believes that he can manipulate the outcome to his satisfaction. While Lake was enthralled with the literary work and would even use the name Miranda for his Miranda project, it would be the 1965 film adaptation directed by William Wyler that would influence another sadistic killer as he stumbled down a dark path leading to sexual torture and murder. A man that would be dubbed by the media as the Kansas City Butcher, Bob Burdella. Robert Andrew Burdella Jr. was born on January 31, 1949, in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, to parents Robert Andrew Burdella Sr. and Mary Louise Huffman Hallaby. Soon Mary became pregnant with his second son, Bob's younger brother Daniel. The Burdella boys grew up in a strict Catholic household, regularly attending Mass and Sunday school. Bob didn't have much friends as he was constantly the subject of ridicule from his fellow students. They would tease him based on his weight, his lisp, and his thick Coke bottle glasses. This treatment extended off of the playground and into the home, where he was often taunted and physically abused by his own father. His brother Daniel was the more favored son by Berdella Sr. because he was athletic and played sports, something that Junior was never interested in. In an effort to find some kind of friendship, young Bob began correspondence with pen pals from all over the world. The only friends he had during his adolescence. On Christmas Eve of 1965, Bob Burdella Sr. died of a heart attack at the young age of just 39. Though he was abusive and downright mean to his son, his sudden death had a huge impact on Bob Jr. The young Burdella began to harm animals and lash out at others. Now, without the discerning eye of his bigoted father, Bob started to experiment sexually with the other boys at the public pool. When his mother Mary remarried, though he was regularly mistreated by his birth father, he resented his mother for moving on. To save up for art school, Bradella began working a part-time job after school where he was raped by an older co-worker. After the rape, the darkness in young Bob grew and he stopped attending the family church. He soon became heavily interested in the occult serial killers, and Satanism. It was around this time that he saw and became obsessed with the film adaptation of the John Fowles novel, The Collector, watching the film over a hundred times. The Collector was something that would inspire his crimes later in life, and a copy was found in his home after his eventual arrest. After graduating in 1967 from Cuyahoga Falls High School, Bob went off to art school at the Kansas City Art Institute he would get by making extra money slinging dope to his fellow students. It was there that Berdella's sexual orientation became clear to him. He was able to experiment with like-minded young men. But unfortunately for Bob, it turned out they weren't so like-minded after all when his darker desires began to surface. During a live performance of his art, Berdella dismembered and burned a live duck. This on-stage cruelty to animals traumatized his fellow students and his teachers, who never saw him the same after that. Bob didn't get the point of the warning from the administrators about his behavior because he repeated the performance, this time using a dog and some tranquilizers. During college, Berdella would have his first brushes with the law. At 19 years old, he tried to sell meth to an undercover cop and was busted, but released on bond. Not even a month after his first offense, Bob was arrested again for possession of LSD and marijuana. He spent five days in jail, but the charges were eventually dropped. The pressures of art school soon became too much for Bradella, who by this point was disliked by almost everyone at the Institute, and he dropped out in 1969. Bob began working as a chef and soon moved to the Hyde Park area of Kansas City taking up residence at 4315 Charlotte Street. By this point, Bradella was completely out of the closet and open about his homosexuality. Finally being happy with who he was, Bob used his newfound freedom to become active in his local community. He would join up with the South Hyde Park Crime Prevention and Neighborhood Association, eventually becoming the chairman of the organization, and he was part of the local neighborhood watch. According to his neighbors, Bradella was very charitable and would take in many teenage drug addicts and homeless young men to help them get clean and on their feet, almost like a local foster parent for disenfranchised youth. However, Burdella had ulterior motives and would often use these boys for sex, even though some of them weren't even gay themselves. While working his way up the food chain at several fine dining establishments, Berdella also began to hustle strange objects, oddities, and mementos as a side gig. He would procure these items from his pen pals from all over the world, who he had kept in contact with as he grew into a man. By 1982, he was able to quit his job at the restaurant to open up his own shop and deal in the weird full-time, and such was the birth of Bob's Bizarre Bazaar. At his novelty shop at the local Kansas City flea market, Berdella peddled funny t-shirts, bumper stickers, and bongs, but it also sold items of the occult like tarot cards and shrunken heads. The business wasn't very profitable on the surface, but Berdella was also selling drugs to teenagers, often using his Bizarre bazaar as a front for his illegal activities. With the opening of his shop, and now working for himself, Burdella had thrust himself into the occult and true crime wholeheartedly. His darker desires that awakened in him when he read The Collector as a teen would boil inside of him to the surface, and eventually could no longer be contained. On July 5, 1984, the butcher of Kansas City would take his first victim, 19-year-old Jerry Howe. Unlike the rest of Burdell's victims, Howe wasn't known to engage in sex work. Instead, Bob knew Howe personally, as he was the son of someone he knew from the art community. When Jerry needed a ride to a dance competition, Bob obliged, picking the teen up from his family home. But before dropping him off he invited Jerry over to his place for some drugs and alcohol. After consuming a cocktail laced with animal tranquilizers, something similar to the tactic used by Jeffrey Dahmer, who he covered earlier this season, Burdella bound and gagged the teenager, tying him up to the headboard of the bed in his spare room. Over the next 28 hours, Jerry Howell slurringly begged for his life as he was sodomized by both Burdella and various inanimate objects like vegetables. Jerry was mercilessly tortured until he finally died, asphyxiating via choking on his own puke. The corpse of Hal was strung up in the basement by the rafters. Bradella then butchered the boy slowly, cutting slits into his flesh to exsanguinate him, before dismembering the body with a chainsaw, disposing of the pieces in the next morning's garbage. The entire process of the drugging, torture, death, and dismemberment was thoroughly documented in a diary of torture that Berdella created specifically for this purpose, showing his brutal actions were premeditated, though Berdella would deny this later on in interviews. He also took Polaroid pictures of every step along the way.
3: I kept sheets of paper that I had made some notations on. This is between the mattress and springs on my bed. This is one of those packages containing numerous photographs and what became to be known as meticulous, methodical diaries. Those pieces of paper in there are these meticulous diaries.
4: These are the pictures of um, the more than 200 photographs, some of them of uh, young men, sexual partners, and these are in some ways, uh, and these that we see here are the the sheets of paper upon which you made notes. Right. This is a copy
3: of one of those pages.
4: It looks like a loose-leaf paper. It does contain information about amounts of uh, drugs and so on. So what is your complaint with the police well, calling these detailed diaries?
3: By your evaluation, does this look methodical? doesn't look methodical. Meticulous? It looks a little sloppy. <laughs> they are not the bound in Corinthian leather written on parchment diaries that the media apparently tries to describe them mass.
1: The words of Bob Burdella and his denial of the existence of the torture diary were spoken with a forked tongue, and during his various interviews, it is plain to see that Robert Burdella Jr. was absolutely full of shit. Gerald Howe, the father of Burdella's first victim, Jerry, suspected the would-be collector of being the reason behind his son's disappearance. He even reported Berdella to the authorities, who questioned him, and began surveillance on his activities. This forced Bob to lie low for a while, in an effort to throw them off of his disgusting scent, and he wouldn't strike again for another eight months. Burdella would continue the use of his torture diary with his second victim, Robert Sheldon, who on April tenth, 1985, came calling to the house at 4315 Charlotte Street. Sheldon had stayed with Burdella in the past, when he was down on his luck, a recurring theme in his short life. Robert had to beg and plead to be let in, as Bob was not particularly physically attracted to the 18-year-old. He would be the only victim that Burdella didn't rape, but he was not spared the physical torture that the Kansas City Butcher would come to be known for. After Sheldon was drugged, he was bound with piano wire and locked in a dog collar. Burdella then began to experiment on the young man using chemicals. Bob injected drain cleaner into Sheldon's eyes and filled his ears with caulking. As Robert struggled in immense pain and confusion, sewing needles were shoved deep underneath his fingernails. The torture would continue for three days until a roofer came calling to the house on Charlotte Street for a repair Berdella had scheduled but forgotten about. He had a lot going on after all. While the man hammered the new shingles into place, Bob freaked out convinced he was about to be caught, and in an effort to conceal his crimes, Burdella covered Sheldon's head with a sack and tied a length of rope around his neck until he was strangled to death. Bob then drained all the blood from his body in his bathtub and dismembered the corpse, throwing pieces of the young man into his dumpster as he had previously done with those of Jerry Howell. However, he kept the skull in his freezer as a macabre souvenir. Before long, the collector would kill again in June. Mark Wallace had helped bob out with some yard work in the past. As rain poured down that summer night, Mark was walking down Charlotte Street getting drenched when he remembered the rickety tool shed in Berdella's backyard. Seeking shelter from the storm, Wallace hopped the fence to Berdella's yard and climbed inside. It wasn't long before Berdella found the 20-year-old shivering and sobbing in the shed. Rather than throwing the young man back out into the cold, He invited him inside to get dry and warm. Though his shivers stopped, Mark's depression didn't. So when Bob suggested he inject him with something that would make him feel better, Thorazine, Wallace took him up on the offer. After Mark passed out, Berdella carried him to the spare bedroom upstairs where he was bound and tortured via nipple clamps and electric shock. Berdella again experimented with the use of chemicals this time injecting drain cleaner into Wallace's muscles and his back, all the while documenting his exploits in his diary and taking Polaroid after Polaroid. When Burdell looked at the pictures of his tortured victims, he saw the ultimate art that he had longed to create. If the teachers and fellow students back at the Kansas City Art Institute could see him now, they would have known they were right about him all along. According to the torture diary, Mark Wallace passed away via a combination of drug overdose and trauma on June 23rd at 7 p.m. The collection of victims would grow in the fall of 1985, and it only gets worse. On the afternoon of September 26th, 1985, Bob Burdell was home perusing his collection of Polaroids with his turgid member in one hand when the phone rang, so he answered it with the other one. It was Walter James Ferris a 20-year-old drifter who had stayed with Burdella in the past during his more human years. After meeting up with the young man at the bar, Bob brought him back to his place where he fed him a meal laced with tranquilizers. After Ferris was face down in his spaghetti, Burdella hauled him up the stairs to his spare bedroom, which was now becoming a regular torture chamber. Ferris was bound to the bedposts in a similar fashion as the previous victims, via piano wire and a dog collar. His torture would be the most brutal thus yet, an excruciating almost 27 hours of constant abuse. Burdella administered 7,700 volt electrical shock directly to Ferris' testicles for minutes on end. He also injected various cleaning solutions into the young man's neck and genitals in between electrocutions, noting the time of every injection or throw of the switch in his torture diary. Eventually, Ferris's condition was so poor that every time he was revived, he passed out within 10 or 15 seconds due to the overwhelming agony of his ruined body. Eventually, Burdella wasn't getting any fun out of it anymore, so he strangled Ferris to death. He then dismembered the body and threw away the remains in the garbage, showing no compassion whatsoever. Burdella's fifth victim endured the longest period of torture of them all, not measured in hours or days, but in weeks. 21-year-old sex worker Todd Stoops was the most physically attractive to Burdella out of all of his victims, so he had to stretch it out as long as possible, no pun intended. Todd had briefly stayed with Bob years ago, but the two hadn't seen each other since until on June 17, 1986, when Stoops approached Burdella while begging for change in Liberty Memorial Park. Bob invited him back to his place for some lunch and some drug money, again sedating his victim before tying him up. For almost two weeks, Brodella explored as many perversions and forms of torture that he could dream of on the mutilated body of Todd Stoops. This time, instead of shocking the testicles, he clamped the alligator clips around the eyeballs of Todd, squeezing the orbs as 7,700 volts of pain were delivered throughout his ocular system. Burdella injected drain cleaner into the young man's larynx in an effort to silence his ongoing screams. Near the end of his ordeal, a starving Stoops begged Burdella for a Coke and a sandwich, but instead of sustenance, his anal cavity was ruptured due to the violent fisting of the collector, who almost made it elbow-deep on his captive, releasing a torrent of blood and shit all over the soiled spare room mattress. The injury was so severe that Stoops went into septic shock, and he passed away on July 1st, 1986. Burdell's next victim came to him via the Bizarre bazaar. 20-year-old Larry Wayne Pearson had a fascination with sorcerers and the occult that led him to the novelty shop operated by the collector in the spring of 1987. Soon after, Pearson began to live with Bob at the house at 4315 Charlotte Street, performing chores in lieu of paying rent. Burdella actually liked Pearson and enjoyed his company. He didn't even intend on torturing Larry until he had to bail him out of jail that summer. On the way home, Larry joked about how he had gotten in trouble for robbing some faggots in Wichita, and the slurs aggravated the openly gay Burdella. Soon, Pearson found himself bound and gagged in the basement, having been drugged with that night's supper. When he tried to scream, he couldn't. And that's when he noticed the hypodermic needle sticking out of his ruined throat and tasted the bleach. For the next month and a half, Pearson would be forced to endure every torture that had befallen Burdella's previous victims, as well as having his fingers broken one by one in an effort to break his spirit as well and make him totally submissive. Within a couple of weeks of abuse, Larry actually convinced Burdella that he would be a willing participant to his every desire a broken and obedient sex slave, the ultimate part of his collection. Thus he was soon moved from the basement to the upstairs spare room, and even untied. Pearson would finally fight back on the sixth week during forced oral sex. As Burdella prepared to climax, Larry bit down as hard as he could and tried to rip the foul organ from his torturer's body. He almost succeeded, as the gash was so hideous and deep that Burdella almost lost his stubby little cock. While potentially bleeding out, Bob beat Larry back into submission and tied him back up before heading to the hospital. Emergency medical attention was able to stop the bleeding, but Berdella would be in need of a major surgery. A red-hot, angry Bob stormed out of the hospital, telling the waiting surgeon that he had to feed his dogs first and sped back home, where he beat Larry Pearson almost to death with a tree branch and then suffocated him with the use of a bag and a length of rope. Bob then drove back to the hospital to save his Johnson and, after recovery, returned home to dismember the corpse of his penultimate victim and bury him in his backyard. Having fully healed from the reattachment of his member, Bob Verdella was out cruising for victims around 1 a.m. on March 29, 1988, when he came across his final victim at the Greyhound bus station, 22-year-old sex worker Christopher Bryson, Bob took him back to his place with the promise of money for sex, but with much more on his mind than that. As they ascended the stairs to the second-floor guest bedroom, Berdella pounced from behind, knocking out Bryson with a blow to the back of the head. As he groggily awakened, drugged and bound, Christopher's vision came into focus and he saw Berdella standing in front of him with hunger in his eyes. You did not choose to be here, but you are for you to survive being here, and for you to, you know, make it, it could either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and to trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Don't try to fight me or just get more of what you had earlier. You see, what you got is nothing compared to what you can have. Polaroids of tortured and dead young men were lined up and on display for Bryson to see, a warning of what would become of him if he didn't obey. Over the course of the next few days, Christopher Bryson would be repeatedly raped and tortured. He was beaten with an iron bar, injected with cleaners, tranquilizers, and antibiotics, and giving electrical shock treatments to almost every inch of his bruised and swollen body, particularly the testicles. Drano was injected into his throat, and swab-soaked in some kind of chemical rubbed into his eyes. Bryson was terrified that he would be the next morbid Polaroid, as he had seen his deterioration documented like that of the others, and felt there was only one final step in the process to go. He earned his trust through obedience, until like Bob had told him, he was soon given meager rewards for his compliance. The restraints maybe weren't as tight as they once had been, the beatings not so severe. Though he began to settle in his new tormented life, Bryson always had a plan of escaping, and that plan would finally be executed the first time Berdella got sloppy. Typically after sex, Christopher had earned the right to a cigarette. And this time, as Berdella left the room to head off to work, he forgot to take the matches with him. Christopher slowly burned through the ropes that bound him, until he was free. Naked, except for a dog collar, burned and bleeding he slowly made his way towards the window. In his weakened condition, it was a tremendous feat to pry open the window, and he was sure he would be caught, but it eventually gave way, and Bryson leapt out of it and onto the roof of the porch, rolling to the ground with a thud that knocked the wind out of him. As he regained his composure, Christopher Bryson took in his first breath of freedom. The air that filled his lungs was fresh, not like that of the basement or the second-floor bedroom which reeked of feces, blood, burning flesh, and decay. He found in himself the strength to get up, to walk, and eventually to run across the street to a neighbor's house for help. The unsuspecting neighbor who opened his door bore witness to the shocking sight of a severely injured naked man in a dog collar, begging for help and crying tears of joy, sure he would never have to see Bob Burdella again. Unsure of what was really going on here, the neighbor made Christopher wait outside on the porch in full view of Burdella's house for the police to arrive. Christopher began to doubt that this would be the end of his torture. Bob might notice he was gone, and he would come looking. However, mercifully, the glow of red and blue lights approached in the distance, and his ordeal had come to an end. Christopher Bryson told the police all about his multiple days of captivity and torture and they sought out to bring in a man they had suspected of being involved in the disappearance of Jerry Howell in the past, the Collector. Bob Burdella was taken into custody without incident, and investigators shortly descended on his home, shocked at the horrors they would soon discover. In the house were over 300 Polaroid photos of rape, torture, and murder. The looks on the faces of the subjects of which haunted even the most grizzled of officers. The most notable discovery was the Torture Diary, which provided enough evidence in Bob's own words to ensure a smooth and quick trial. Officers also found the skulls of Robert Sheldon and Larry Pearson, newspaper clippings about the disappearance of Jerry Howe, the driver's license of Walter James Ferris, and the devices Burdella used to torment his captives. They also discovered numerous books on the occult and Satanism possibly extended inventory of Bob's Bizarre bazaar or his personal collection. Multiple human remains were exhumed from the property as Bob Berdella sat in a cell awaiting his fate, probably feeling like one of his victims, locked in a room, unsure when he would return and the abuse would continue. On April 4th, 1988, Bob Burdella was arraigned on seven counts of sodomy, one count of felonious restraint, and one count of first-degree assault. Bail was initially set at half a million dollars, but was revoked the next day after officers on scene testified that one of the men in Bordella's photographs appeared to be dead. Without a confession, investigators forced Burdella to reenact some of his photographs that featured him as well as the victim, since his face was obscured. They made him strip and reenact some of the sexual poses that were documented in his obscene Polaroids. This humiliated Bob. Having to sit naked in front of a room full of cops and hump of mannequin's cold plastic ass, or recreate the visual of him shoving a carrot or perhaps a fist deep within its non existent nether regions. This was just a taste of the scrutiny Burdello would face during his trial, and rather than be subjected to that, he pled guilty on december nineteenth, nineteen eighty eight to first degree murder in the death of victim Robert Sheldon, and four additional counts of second degree murder. Somewhere along the way, Burdella began to bask in the spotlight and ended up providing a full confession and details to six murders. Rumors spread both locally and in the media about the Kansas City butcher and his bizarre bazaar, including his involvement with Satanists and the occult, and even potential cannibalism, both of which were denied by Burdella in later interviews.
4: We recall we mentioned before that uh, there were reports in the Westport flea market where you had uh, your shop that. Um, People would say, oh, yes, I do remember uh, he, he had these strange-smelling dishes of food, uh, that uh, he had bead bones, and later on there was speculation, at least in the community and in some aspects of the media, uh, that uh, the remains of your victim were somehow being transported and prepared as meals and prepared as jewelry in your shop. I was quickly able to identify
3: to the police the other dealers in the, that section of the market where we reach, rotated potluck rather than eat the flea market food again. And that you could question any of these people. They'd be able to tell you that the food was good. There was nothing suspect about the turkey or ham or beef.
1: News of the crimes of Bob rudella spread fast. Kansas City was fascinated that a serial killer was amongst their midst, and the case was sensationalized to such a degree that it offered little sympathy towards the victims and their families.
4: Not long after your arrest, the local radio stations, two of them at least, were running a Bob Berdella parody song and were asking people to come to parties wearing dog collars. Well, I think the newspaper
3: article reported that even the families of the victims were upset by the song. I have never had a chance to hear this. I had also been told when I first came into jail that the Fox radio station had run a promo giving prizes to their listeners if they showed up at the station in a dog collar and with a leash on. The people here in the institution, the correctional officers, the caseworker, even the psychiatrist, or I think Surprised to find out that that upset me.
4: And it did upset
3: you? Very much so.
1: We've often talked about the concept of the less dead here on True Crime Horror Story. Like Jeffrey Dahmer, Bob Berdella preyed upon a segment of the population whose disappearances were met with indifference, minimally educated and poor gay sex workers.
3: I don't think any family of my victims or anybody else that has been killed now related to Tenth and McGee are going to be happy to find out that their loved one is basically written off by the police as far as investigations go, et cetera, because they died in a convenient neighborhood. The police knew what was going on, so it's
4: no big deal. And that accounts for your remark to me, and I don't mean at all to make light of it, that I killed six, but they, the police, by allowing us to stay open, they killed more. Yes. This has been something that's been going on for over 20 years, to my knowledge. It seems to me that you're suggesting that had the police done their job, had they followed the leads, had they really been on your case prior to April 2nd, 1988, they would have caught you and some of the suffering could have been prevented. Maybe not caught me,
3: scared me off maybe, prevented Things are happening after how?
1: Definitely. Burdell was eventually sentenced to life in prison for his crimes. As he sat in the Jackson County Jail awaiting transfer, he was placed on 24-7 suicide watch and segregated from the other inmates for his own protection.
4: There was a report yes. in the Sunday Kansas City Star in December about the dangers you might face after you leave the Jackson County Correction Facility and are moved to another larger prison. Uh, how do you feel about reports like that? Do they make you anxious?
3: They give me some reason for concern, but one of the reasons I'm concerned is that these were not just reports. These were digging out quotes from unnamed prosecutors, implica- implying that the inmates down there are waiting to get their hands on me. I am, le- at this point, I'm less concerned about the inmates acting on their own as opposed to the inmates or an inmate acting in response to maybe some directive or coercion from the police officers.
4: Do you think you're being set up,
3: perhaps? Well, I think the Star and Times have, since they haven't been able to get a court to put me the death are now trying to get the inmates to do it
1: for. Unlike Jeffrey Dahmer, Bob Berdella was unable to have his would-be death sentence carried out by his fellow inmates in a form of prison justice. Instead, he would die on October 8, 1992, at the age of 43, due to a heart attack, the same thing that had killed his father.
5: Just a bunch of earth is all that's left of 4315 Charlotte, but some people will never forget the house nor the man who lived here. Bob Berdella, Kansas City's most infamous serial killer, is dead. He died in prison after his victims were killed in his home. Berdella confessed to sexually and physically torturing six men here. But some believe there were more victims and hope digging up the house might unearth some secrets. That's why millionaire Del Dunmire, who owns the property, had workers carefully tear it down. Private detective Ashley Hearn was here in 1988 when the truth came out, and he's been here for the past five weeks, making sure no other bodies turned up. He says the stairs to the basement will be saved, as well as this drain, reportedly used to carry away the blood of Burdella's victims. Well, this appears to be the final chapter of the Burdella story, and no one could be happier than those who live on either side who will split the property.
1: Though six victims were identified via photographs, remains, and Burdella's confession, the Kansas City Butcher may have taken many more as several body parts and faces in the photographs were never identified, the answers about which were taken with him to his grave. As Bob Burdella lay on the floor clutching his chest and feeling himself slowly slipping into oblivion, the collector longingly thought back on his victims and the Polaroid pictures that documented their final moments. Though they were now dead and gone, they were immortalized forever in his masterpieces, individual pieces of his art, and part of his collection. Thanks for joining us for another episode of True Crime Horror Story. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Suggested movies similar to today's cases... For 44 Days of Hell, Concrete and High School Girl Murder Case, a 1995 Japanese exploitation film by Katsuya Matsumura, and Concrete, a 2004 Japanese horror drama directed by Hiromu Nakamura, loosely based on the case. And for The Collector, The Collector, a 1965 film adaptation of the John Fowles novel, directed by William Wyler, and Bizarre Bizarre, a 2004 trauma docudrama Directed by Benjamin Mead. If you like what you hear here on True Crime Horror Story, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. You can also think about joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com TrueCrimehs. And then stay tuned after this show on Patreon for the True Crime Horror Story After Show with Dom and JD, as well as early access to ad-free episodes and exclusive bonus content available only on Patreon. This episode features additional research by Gabriel Pulsara for the Bob Bordella segment. Music by Mechanical Ghost, producer LB from the No One Likes Us podcast, The Quiet Type, as well as artwork by Nuclear Heat Graphics. Sources for this episode's cases are available in the credit section of our website. Has violent crime impacted you or someone close to you? Send us your story at truecrimehorrorstory at gmail.com. True crime horror story. Sometimes truth is more brutal than fiction.
3: Hello and welcome to the Funtime Horror Show. I'm your host, Tommy Bell. Don't let the name deceive you as nothing about our stories are much fun. In this podcast, we'll discuss true life horrors across the board. This show should be a good mix of stories covering true crime, haunted houses, cannibals, serial killers, cults. It doesn't really matter to us. If you like the macabre, horror, violence, general grossness, well, this is your show. We also refuse to stick to a format as to keep things feeling fresh and interesting. The plan is to release one new episode every two weeks, so we hope to see you then. Remember, that's the fun Time Horror Show. No kids allowed, and listener discretion is extremely advised